In pursuit of God, discovering purpose, maximizing potential. 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 Jesus House for All Nations. This message has been recorded live at Jesus House for All Nations. God bless you. Today we are um, coming to the end of a, a seven-part series on identity. Oh God, who am I? It's a message that can be life-changing if you would receive it and act on it. Um, it's a message that the enemy doesn't want you or the church to hear. Because when we regain our identity... Uh, we enter a realm that is described in the first two chapters of the Bible, uh, a realm, especially in the second chapter of, of the first book of the Bible, of the book of Genesis, where we are walking in tandem with God. Uh, we are in perfect harmony with God. We are fulfilling God's plans and God's purposes for our lives. And the enemy doesn't want that. His ministry... John 10, verse 10, to steal, to kill, and destroy. He doesn't want us to enter this fullness of life that comes from a clear understanding of who we are. Uh, and today, as we bring it to an end, I pray that you would not just have heard it over seven parts, but that you will spend time understanding and digesting the truths and working in the truths. So of course, it started with God's intention expressed. The triune God expressing their intention. This is what they wanted to do. The Bible says, God said, Genesis 1 verse 26, the Amplified Version, God said, let us, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, make mankind in our image after our likeness, and let them have complete authority over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the tame beasts, and over all the earth, and over everything that creeps upon the earth. This was the intention of God. This was God's plan, the, the, the Trinity, the triune God, expressing their intention. We want to make this species of, of creation called mankind. Uh, we want to make this species in our image and in our likeness. And then that intention was carried out, we understand, in the next verse. For the Bible tells us, so God created man in his own image. In the image and likeness of God, he created him, crucially, male and female, he created them. The Bible is very clear about this. God carried out his intention. Uh, he, he, he created this, 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 this species, man, generic. Uh, he, he, he made them in his image and his likeness. And the Bible confirms very clearly that male and female, <laughs> he made them. Very quickly, we understand that this whole thing revolves around the image and the likeness of God. We understand that this is what is, it is all about a resemblance to God, a representation of God, a likeness of God, a sameness with God, the character or characteristics of God. We understand that really it involves an identity that the creation, mankind had from God. And they saw this as they looked at God for they were made in God's image and likeness. If we put it into, into the context of, the, of creation, we understand even more the significance of those two verses. Frankly, as we read the creation story in Genesis, the first chapter, um, and we read into Genesis, the second chapter, we are held spellbound by the awesomeness and beauty of God's creation. We see the power of creation as light is created, the skies are created, the earth is created, the oceans are created, trees and plants are called into being, the sun, the moon, and the stars are hung out oh God, on, the, on the canvas of the skies. 
The fish and all the sea creatures are created. The birds are created. And there's an interruption, it would seem, as God steps back from his, his creation and looks at it and pronounces his work good. And then he continues creating the cattle, the animals, the reptiles, the wild animals, the insects. Again, he looks at his creation, what he has done so far, and he says this, he says this is also good. But as beautiful and as awesome as these creatures are, none of them is made in the image of God. That God has reserved for his masterpiece, his jewel. When he creates mankind, his masterpiece, he takes a step back and he doesn't just pronounce this creation good. He goes one step further as if to confirm the order of things. He pronounces his creation with his masterpiece in it very good. The image and likeness created man's identity. Man realized this is who I am to be like. It gave mankind an intrinsic value. It made clear who man was created to be. The qualities and characteristics that define mankind, his identity, were taken from God because man, male and female, was made in the image of God. It also helped the understanding that truth and beholding the image, looking at the image, it helped man also understand what he was supposed to do, what he had been created to do, his functions in a sense, because he was made in the image and likeness of God. It helped man understand what he was and what he was supposed to do. And these are the very things that Satan was after, the devaluation of man in his mind and then as a result using him to devalue others. The confusion that he could sow into the mind of man so that man was not sure anymore who he was and what he was supposed to do. For the nature of what God created in his image and his likeness, what is called in Latin imago dei, is what sets mankind apart from the other animals that were created. The animals were awesome. And when you go to a zoo or you go to a, an aquarium or one of, those, one of these places where you see animals, haven't you looked at them and been in awe of the, of the majesty of this animal? Have you ever seen a leopard in full flight? Have you seen an eagle flying? Have you seen some of the, the most amazing sea creatures that exist and thought God is awesome? As awesome as those are, a horse in full flight, none of them was made in the image of God. Only this special jewel, this creation of God, this masterpiece, man was made in his image. And that's what gives us our value, an intrinsic value that places us above everything in the created order that we are made in the image of God. A lion with all its majesty was not made in the image of God. A falcon hunting was not made in the image of God. A whale as big as it is was not made in the image of God. That was reserved for only one of God's creation, mankind, in the image of God. Instantly we understand that we have value in, in God's creation. And then by looking at the image of God, we understand what we are created to do. As we behold the image, as we look at the image, it becomes clear to us what we are created to do. What are we created to do? What the image does. We are created to rule, to have dominion over his creation, to take responsibility for it. We are created as vice regents, Authority delegated to us. It's instructive to note that in all this delegation, there's no place in the Bible where we are asked to dominate and rule over men. So we rule his creation. We have responsibility for it. 
But we don't dominate and rule over men in the sense of oppressing men. And when we see the model of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he teaches us what rulership means really. Where he says to his disciples, in the world they can do it like this. They, they can be lords. But here in the kingdom, we rule by serving. It's what he calls servant leadership. That's why a lot of the developing world is completely dysfunctional because our political leaders have no clue about servant leadership. They think they are elected to an office to, to, to oppress, to rule, to be authoritarian, to be dictatorial. That's why the politics of the, of the, of the developing world just simply doesn't work because the concept of, of servant leadership as, ru as rulership is alien to them. But then we see it in the image and we know that's what we're supposed to do. We also understand who God created us to be. That our qualities and our characteristics are supposed to be like God's. So if God is holy, we are supposed to be holy. If God is love, we are supposed to love. If God is kind, we are supposed to be kind. Whatever we, saw, we see in God, we are supposed to mirror it. And the list goes on and on. And Satan understood that as long as we had this image, we then knew who we were in terms of our value. We knew what we were supposed to do, what our functions were. We also knew what qualities and characteristics we were supposed to show because we had the picture, the image, and we understood that we are made in this image and this likeness. It was very easy, it would be very easy then to have some yardsticks to measure ourselves because if I don't love like this, there's something wrong. If I'm not kind like this, there's something wrong. If I'm not holy like this, then there's something wrong. If I don't take responsibility for my world, if I'm not, if I'm not serving like this, there's something wrong. If I don't understand the value that I have from this image, the very image gives me value, then there's something wrong. And so Satan had a plan. Somehow, he had to separate man from this image, get man away from this image. Somehow, he had to make sure that this image becomes hazy, obscured, difficult to discern. Somehow, he had to, if it was possible, block the image entirely. For man's very being was God from the image. And the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59 verse 2 helps us understand how he achieved his purpose, the success of his ministry. The prophet says, it's your sins that have cut you off from God because, your si because, because of your sins he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Satan knew that if I can cause man to sin, and it's a continuous process. Not just with Adam and Eve, but if I can continue to make man rebellious, to, to make man do things that, that, will, that will cause God to turn away, to make man do things that will create a gulf, a schism, a gap, that will remove man from the proximity to that image, the nearness to that image, and take man far away. If I can do that, then I can affect how man values himself and values other, create, other, 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 other men and women. I can affect how man create confusion as to what man does. I can create confusion as to who, who man is. And all we have to do is look around our world and we see how successful he has been in doing that. For what else would make a husband hit a wife? 
apart from the fact that he just does not understand the value of the wife. What else would make a young man take a knife and stab another young man? Made in the image of God. The very knowledge that this is in the image of God should make the other person have respect for that person who is made in the image of God. But if Satan can rob us of that truth, get us far away so we are confused, we don't understand the value of another human being, then it's easy to stab the human being because you don't see the human being as something that is created in the image of God. What else can make someone a pedophile, abuse a child because he doesn't see, he doesn't understand that that child is made in the image of God. That in a sense, he's abusing God by abusing that child. What else can make people take someone and sell them into sex slavery? Because they don't understand the value. What can make people do things like take drugs, for example, going to destroy themselves? I mean, what makes somebody smoke cigarettes? with a packet that has a warning that you're going to die from smoking these cigarettes. I mean, what else can make somebody... That is as clear as it gets. White packet, red warning, smoke this thing continuously, you're going to die. And the person, highly intelligent professor with a PhD, a doctorate, who can discern and teach about atoms and physics and all kinds of complex things, smokes the cigarette continuously, Knowing that the warning is likely to take place. Why? Because he's devalued himself. And when that happens, we see the result in a broken and dysfunctional world where mankind has lost their identity and has now become irresponsible in how we treat ourselves. Rather than treat the person with dignity, we, we treat the person like the way we see a lot of us treat ourselves because we simply don't understand that this person was made in the image and likeness of God and so was I. And as a result, I have to treat that person like God treats us. That's why we look around and we can see the result of being far away from that image and now completely the image is obscured. And so man... In this dysfunctional world where the image is obscured, he's completely lost an understanding of what he's supposed to do, supposed to serve. People oppress. People suppress other human beings because they've lost an idea of who they are. Supposed to be responsible for the environment. That's what God did. He charged us with responsibility for his environment, for his creation. But it doesn't matter anymore. Fill the oceans with plastic and kill all the wildlife, or, or, or kill all the sea life, all the animals in the sea that we are supposed to be responsible for. Who cares? Just fill the whole place with plastic. Man has become irresponsible simply because man no longer has an image that constantly tells him this is who you are. That's why man... Since we don't know what we should be like, who we should be like, we then choose who we should be like. We watch reality television and then we think we should be like the Kardashians. They determine our lives. We choose all kinds of role models, but we miss the role model because we can't see the image anymore. It's, it's blurred, it's obscured, it's hazy. We don't love like we should because we can't see an image that compels us to love. We don't work with integrity and holiness like we should because there is no image. The standards become the standards of other images that we borrow because we can't see the image. But God had a plan. Can someone say amen? And that plan was... His son, Jesus Christ. God knew that this schism, this gulf, this gap had been created. But his love for you and I compelled him, God. The triune God to hatch a plan, a plot to save you and I. 
And what was that plan? It was his son, Jesus Christ. Paul puts it like this in Colossians 1 verses 19 and 20. He says, he says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. He says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We were, as a result of our rebellion and our sin, we found ourselves cut off from God, unable to stand and view this image and be challenged by the image, encouraged by the image. Our moral compass totally gone, gone haywire because there was nothing that we could look at that was daily reminding us of who we are. Because the gap was such, the, the gulf was such that the image had become obscured, hazy. It was too far away for us to discern clearly, for it to speak clearly to our lives. But then God had a plan. Out of his love, he had to reconcile us to him, bring us back, mend the relationship, heal the relationship, close the gap, transport us from outside inside. And that plan is enshrined in his son, Jesus Christ. The plan starts with the birth of Christ, finds its fulfillment with the resurrection of Christ. The peak of that plan, the height of that plan was his death at the cross of Calvary. For in that, in that death, he took on the sin because somehow someone had to be judged. He took on the wrath of God. He became sin that you and I might be free. Free to come back into a relationship with God. In a symbolic way, that was demonstrated as he died on the cross, the curtain in the temple that separated the outer court and the inner court from the Holy of Holies was torn in two. It was to symbolize that with his death, something has happened that has healed the relationship. Now we can all go into his presence and become near and come near to him again so that we can behold the image and the image can start to affect our lives and influence our lives and dictate to our lives. Can someone say amen to that? And that was the awesome price that Christ paid with his blood, that we are reconciled to God. And then when we are reconciled to God, brought back into this, this, this relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and it had to be Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is one with God. And so God, as part of the plan to use his son Jesus Christ, to bring us to him. Because Jesus Christ, if we understand, is the image of God. If you see Christ, you have seen God. Because he's the express image of God. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews 1 verse 3. It says, he is the sole expression of the glory of God. The light being, the outrain or radiance of the divine. And he is the perfect imprint and very image of God's nature, upholding and maintaining and guiding and propelling the universe by the mighty word of his power. When he had by offering himself accomplished our cleansing of sins and riddance of guilt, he sat down at the right hand of the divine majesty on high. The Passion Translation says it like this, the sun is the dazzling radiance of God's splendor, the exact expression of God's true nature, his mirror image. He holds the universe together and expands it by the mighty power of his spoken word. He accomplished for us the complete cleansing of sins and then took his seat on the highest throne at the right hand of the majestic one. Awesome scriptures that describe the grace that you and I experience as a result of what Christ did. He comes as the sole expression of the glory of God, the perfect imprint and image of God's nature. The message says God's, the, the, the Passion Translation says God's mirror image. So you can imagine, 
For those who saw him, they were so blessed because they wanted to be restored back to what we describe in Genesis 1. And God says, I'll do it. How will I do it? I'll send my son. He'll pay the price for sin. He'll bridge the gap. And the cross is always a bridge between a sinful life and a right relationship with Christ. All we have to do is walk across it. He's paid the price already. And then I will give him as an example. So if you observe him, he has God's nature. You suddenly know your, what you're supposed to do. If you observe him, he serves. He, 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 he acts like God. So you suddenly know what you're supposed to do. If you observe him, as you observe him and see me in him, you suddenly know who you are. He brings value to lives. So he meets a woman at the well who has no value whatsoever of her life. Life's circumstances have stripped her of every shred of dignity that a human being should have. So much so, she's given up on life, and the husband she's living with, who is the sixth man, having had five failed marriages with the consequences on her soul, her esteem, and her dignity. Having given up on life and not even bothering, it might work for others, but it's obviously not working for me. A woman who has no esteem and no dignity, she suddenly has an encounter with the image of God in the person of Christ. Her dignity is restored. Her purpose is restored. She suddenly sees herself in a different light. She knows she's valued. She enters God's call for her life and is released as an evangelist that saves a whole town. Only Christ makes that happen. And that's God's plan. So Jesus comes and the disciples and all those who followed him then, they watch him. And as they watch him, as they hang around him, he brings value to their lives. He restores dignity that was lost, esteem that was lost. As they watch him, they suddenly realize this is what we're supposed to do because he models it for them. He models love and models kindness and models holiness and models servant leadership amongst the many things that he models. And so they are watching him and they're learning as they're watching him. And then he tells them in the many teachings that he had as they sat around him, he tells them who they are. He explains to them who they are. And you and I could be forgiven for thinking it was a lot easier for them because they had the, they had the image living with them. And then the Bible tells us that, but after a while, the image ascends through the heavens and goes and sits down on the right hand of the Father in heaven. So you and I can be forgiven for thinking that poses a challenge to us. Because you see, 21st century London is not the Middle East. We are not walking on the dusty roads of Jerusalem. We are not walking between towns. I don't know what the Sea of Galilee is like. It's a completely different thing. And to, to compound matters, the image that I should look at that should help me through this life is no longer here. My Bible tells me he's seated on the right hand of the Father in heaven. And that poses a challenge because I need that image to help me with my identity because that image is my identity. It helps me because I know I am made in the image and likeness, but the image is sitting in heaven on the right hand of the Father. So what do I do? This is what Paul says that encourages us. Because now I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I'm reconciled to God. 
in 21st century London. But reconciliation is just where it starts. That's the relationship mended. The rest is a journey. I have to become like the image. I have stepped over the threshold of the door, but I have to become like Christ. That's the whole essence. And I become like Christ by, by looking at that image. So my journey starts. Your journey has started. Because now our relationship is mended. I'm a Christian. I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I've crossed the threshold. But now, crossing the threshold is one thing. I have to become. I have to strengthen that relationship, build that relationship, get to know God, which is really the sole reason that we exist. So what do I do? Paul helps us in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. He says, And all of us, as with unveiled face, because we continued to behold in the word of God as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are constantly being transfigured into his very own image in ever-increasing splendor and from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. An amazing scripture. And let's use a mirror to illustrate this. Paul says, something has happened to you and I. The moment we are reconciled, we have an unveiled face. The veil that covered our faces, our eyes, has been torn away. That's why the Bible says, can I have the mirror? That's why the Bible says, concerning those who don't yet know Christ, that the God of this world has blinded their eyes. That's why sometimes you wonder that it just makes sense to follow God. It just makes so much sense. I mean, I, what would you do without Christ? How do you live without Christ? How do you know that you're going to die and you're not concerned about where you will end up? How does anybody cope with life without Christ? How does anybody not have God to rely on? How do you deal with the valleys of life if you don't have Christ? How do you cope if hope is deferred? How do you deal with the sickness of a loved one? How do you deal with a, with a disappointment? How do people cope? It's, it's amazing that the whole nation that doesn't know Christ is not locked up in some mental institution. The pressures of life without Christ, how does anybody cope? You would assume that it just makes sense to just follow God. But then it makes sense when the veil is taken off. But as long as the veil is there, you can't even see that it makes sense. So Paul says, once we're reconciled, it is like we are unveiled. The veil is taken away from our faces. And then he says, when that happens, we must continue to behold, as in the mirror, the glory of God. And I love the word behold. It's a powerful word, an active word. We must continue to be focused on, diligent in, looking at. It becomes the moral compass for our lives. It defines our lives. We pay attention to. He says, behold the glory of the Lord. And as we do so, we are constantly being transfigured into his very own image and in ever increasing splendor and from one degree of glory to another. So I give my life to Christ. I'm reconciled to God. Lift up the mirror. I'm reconciled to God. So Paul says this is what happens. You know, one minute you were far away. You were in a club. You were spending your life boozing. And you, maybe you were not. You just didn't have time for God. You were getting on with life. You were doing things that were not pleasing to God. You were in darkness. But then, you come to church. You hear a message. It pricks your heart. You accept the free gift of salvation. You move from a place where you are far away from God. The blood of Jesus literally 
transforms you that you were outside and takes you into the very presence of God. And Paul says now your sole assignment in life is to behold what you see in the mirror. Paul says as you look at the mirror, pay attention to it. Focus on the mirror. As you diligently, day and night, morning and night, look in the mirror. Paul says you start to be transformed from glory to glory because the mirror is, is, is the glory of God and you are in the image of that mirror. So you start to become like what is in the mirror. Can someone say amen? amen. And Paul says clearly for us to understand that this mirror, because you see, we don't have the express image of God anymore here with us. So we can't follow him around. We can't sit down and listen and hear him speak. We can't watch him demonstrate because that's the very express image, imprint, perfection, perfect representative of God. Paul says, don't worry, God has a plan. He hasn't forgotten you. When he takes him to sit on his right hand, incidentally, on his right hand, he still continues in ministry. One obvious ministry, the ministry of intercession. The Bible says he makes intercession for you and I. So he's praying that this, what we're doing here will be successful. Paul says now what is left is he has left you with the image of God in the word of God. So Paul says this mirror is the word of God. Continue to behold it. Continue to stay with it. Continue to study it. Continue to read it. Continue to be focused on it. Continue to do what the word says. That's the mirror. And Paul says, as you're doing that, you're changing daily. You are transfigured daily. You, you see me yesterday. I'm a different person because something in the word has challenged me. I have seen who I'm supposed to be like. I know what I'm supposed to do. And I need to do what I see in that mirror. Can someone say amen? It's what Paul talks about in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Philip, you can step back a bit. Where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg of you, in view of all the mercies of God, make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, consecrated, and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable, rational, intelligent service and spiritual worship. I love that scripture. Paul says, listen guys, he says, if you're reasonable, rational, intelligent, he says, it's a no-brainer. That's what Paul is saying. That scripture, that's what Paul says. It's a no-brainer. He says, if you are reasonable, rational, and intelligent, you will understand that you're here simply because of God's mercies. You will understand that it's not your work, it's not your intelligence, it's not your family connections, it's not your efforts. You will understand that God has just shown you mercy. That's why you are where you are. And Paul says, if you understand that and you are reasonable, rational, and intelligent, then the, the one thing that you can do is say to this God who has shown me such mercy that I don't deserve, what can I give him but to just give him my life? What is Paul saying? Anybody who doesn't do that, you have to question the person's reasoning, the person's rationality, and the person's intelligence. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying it's a no-brainer. And then he goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, this age, fashioned after and adapted to its external superficial customs, but be transformed, changed by the entire renewal of your mind, by its new ideals and its new attitudes, so that you may prove for yourselves what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, even the thing which is good, acceptable, and perfect in his sight. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, when you understand what God has done, you commit your life to him. You commit yourself to standing before that mirror and focusing diligently on that mirror. The mirror becomes what, what matters to you. And Paul says that mirror is the word of God. 
He says, as you do that, you automatically lock into God's will, God's purpose, and God's plan for your life. Can someone say amen? amen. But then Paul goes on to warn us that the mirror, you trying to focus on the mirror yourself without your helper, the Holy Spirit, will actually lead to death. He says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6, the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit pours out life. What is Paul saying? He's saying that transformation is impossible without the Spirit of God. Can someone say amen? Absolutely impossible without the Spirit of God. We need the help of the Spirit to be able to become what the Spirit wants us to become. It is impossible to enter the dimension of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. What we call the fruits of the Spirit without the help of the Spirit. These things are fruits of the Spirit. We can't on our own look at that mirror and become with all the challenges that exist without the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Philip, can you come back? And for you and I in the church, I, sh I, I could end there because now you know we're reconciled to God. We're redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We're bought back. We've been transported from darkness into his marvelous light. We're children of God. We're born again. We've given our lives to Christ. We're no longer far away in an outer court. We are right before God. And all we have to do to be transformed from day to day, changing from glory to glory, all we have to do is to just look at the mirror. Just stay focused on the Word of God by the Spirit of God. And just doing that alone, we're transformed. The church should be filled with representations of Christ because we now have the opportunity to. But can I tell you the challenge that you and I face? The demons, principalities that we must slay to allow us to embrace this fullness of God. Come you guys, four of you guys. I want to demonstrate this to you and then we're done. Because this is the enemy's strategy to disrupt a process that is already in the making. You're in church. You're saved. You're reconciled to God. You're a Christian. You accept that you've started the journey. But what does the enemy do? He brings things that will obstruct. Go on, dab, step forward. So the enemy knows that, like we said at the beginning, that mirror is the issue. If I can stay focused on that mirror, if I can see that mirror, you see, the mirror solves it because the mirror tells me who I am. The mirror gives me value. What I see in the mirror gives me value. The mirror tells me what I'm supposed to do. So just by focusing on the mirror, Spending time in it. The mirror starts to shape my life. I don't have to do anything. I just have to focus on the mirror by the Spirit of God. Focus on the Word of God by the Spirit of God. It starts to change my life. So it's a win-win for you and I, but the enemy is determined that you mustn't win. His ministry to steal, to kill, and destroy. So what does he do? He brings the first of his strategies to make sure that I can't see the mirror, that the mirror is obscured. He brings man. And so I'm trying to see Christ in the mirror so that I can become like Christ. 
I'm in church. I, I, I know that the mirror is the key to my success. I'm made in the image and likeness that is in the mirror. If I can see that image and likeness, I suddenly get my identity back. I know who I am. I know what I'm supposed to do. I suddenly get value and I value others. But then man stands in the way. And man starts to try to obscure. And, and I'm trying to see the mirror, but, but man is in the way. I, I just need to see who I am, but man is in the way. I need to know what I'm supposed to do, but man is in the way. I just can't see that mirror because of man. But I go to church, I'm worshiping, I'm praying, but there's just a man or a woman that's in the way and is often a man of God and a woman of God. And so, after a while, I literally give up. And I just try and see through the man. And that's where you hear people, they talk more about their pastors than they do about Christ. They share more testimonies about the man than they share about God. They know everything about the man's life, but they know very little about Christ's life. Because the man has put himself there. And sometimes you, you also understand the, the failings of the man. Because as long as the man is there acting like a high priest, then I can't get to see Christ who is my real high priest. And the man now starts to manipulate me because I can't see Christ. I, I don't know who I am. So guess what? The man tells me who I am. But I don't want you to tell me who I am. I want to see who I am in the mirror. And you can confirm what I see in the mirror. But I can't see the mirror because you're obscuring it. And, and, and unfortunately, that's what happens in a lot of our churches. So I want to learn how to pray because I want to see Jesus praying. But you won't let me learn how to pray. You insist that you must show me how to pray. But why don't you show me how Jesus prayed so that I can learn how to pray like Jesus and be like you so that you don't, I don't have to go to you to pray for me. I have to go to Jesus. And the man doesn't realize that his role is to stand aside and be a signpost to say this way to the mirror. I'm not the mirror. This is the mirror. His name is Jesus Christ. Go and give God a clap offering. But the enemy has other tools, just in case you get away from man. The enemy brings in another tool, traditions of men. Incidentally, you should listen to the psalmist. The psalmist says in Psalms 146 verse 3, concerning man, he says, don't put your confidence in powerful people. There is no help for you there. Don't, 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 don't put yourself in powerful people. I'm a man of God. Should I tell you the truth? We struggle like you. We're as human as you are. If you knew all our weaknesses, frailties, and failings, you will not put your confidence in us. I've been in this thing for a long time. I've seen the, the biggest men of God. When I get into their private lives, I'm thinking, really? You better be a signpost and point me to Jesus because you really cannot help me. You're a man. You're supposed to help me know him, not know you. And he brings the second person, the second obstruction to obscure. And it's the traditions of men. Jesus himself puts it like this. Mark 7, verse 8 to 9. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. I just want to see the mirror. I'm in church. But they want to suffocate me with the traditions of men. They, for, for the traditions of men, they won't let me see the mirror. They say, this is how we do it. This is how we've always done it. I know that's how you've done it. But do you know that God might have a new way to do it? How about thinking about that? They said, this is, they said this, is, this is how we dress. 
If you don't dress like this, then you're not saved. No, nothing wrong with ripped jeans as long as it is not, as long as it is modest. That's what they wear. It's okay. But somehow the traditions of men, this is the time we do it. This is when you have to pray. I say, let me see the mirror because I think I understand from the little glimpse I have of the mirror that they pray every time. I don't have to read the Bible at 12 midnight for it to work. I don't, I don't have to drink, drink the Psalms that have been torn by, and put into some water. Just give me a break. These traditions are killing me. I just want Christ. I want what is in the picture, but your traditions are killing me. They are suffocating me. Allow me to see Christ. And, and not see these traditions. These traditions are driving me away from church. They've driven many away from church. I know that's how you've always done it. But can you change that a bit just so that I can see the mirror? But the traditions of men are in your way. Give God a clap offering, traditions of men. And it gets worse. Because if the enemy doesn't win, by the deification of man or woman, if he doesn't win by suffocating you with the cords of tradition, he will win by bringing in the darkness of culture. Colossians 2 verse 8, the Passion Translation. Beware that no one distracts you or intimidates you in their attempt to lead you away. It is a distraction and an intimidation. If you encounter culture where it's trying to suffocate the spirit, it is intimidating. Don't let it lead you away from Christ's fullness by pretending to be full of wisdom. And isn't that what culture does? They say, this is the wise way. This is how we do it. It's our culture. It judges you. Culture. It says they are filled with endless arguments of human logic. They operate with humanistic and clouded judgments based on the mindset of this world system and not the anointed truths of the anointed one. Culture. When the culture of the world comes in. So young people don't know that they should respect elders because the culture of the world says it doesn't matter. So a young man gives his life to Christ and is trying to, trying to see, you know, what, is, what, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to treat, treat people? It's in the mirror, but culture stands in the way. And culture is sending a different message, a different truth, a different logic. It's telling them that being cool, having swag, you know? Yeah, that's what culture is doing. You're not, you're not lit if you don't do it like this. And culture is in, the, in their face. And so after a while, because culture is in their face, the, the young man who used to have respect for his elders suddenly starts to behave like culture because he thinks it's swag that he has to have. And he's obscuring the mirror. And it gets worse. Where people bring their own culture, not even the culture of the world, but their own particular culture. So if you don't call me auntie or uncle, you cannot be saved. No, that's your African culture. Nothing wrong with it. As long as you accept it's your African culture, don't impose it on me. But that doesn't mean, of course, that I can, I can, a seven-year-old just says to Doc, uh, Shala, no, that's also not the culture. The culture we want is a biblical culture. That biblical culture is respect. If respect means that I don't call him Uncle Doc, but I call him Pastor Shola or Dr. Adeaga, that's respect. But I don't have to call him Uncle and Auntie. I like the quaint African culture where everybody's Uncle and Auntie, but you don't have to call me uncle or auntie to be part of the kingdom of God and part of this family with me. That's a cultural issue that I must not use to judge you. So culture gets in the way. And because of culture, this all, all suffocating culture, is I can't see. I'm, it's obscuring me. I'm reading my Bible through cultural lenses. And, and, and why did Paul come to take the message to the Gentiles? 
Because Peter could not take the message because Peter was trapped in culture. Peter slay and eat. Peter said, I can never do a thing like that. These unclean animals? Never. Peter slay and eat. Peter said, these animals that are called unclean? Never. What God calls clean, how dare you call it unclean? Peter, your ministry is over. Paul is going to the Gentiles. Because Peter could not transcend culture. How many people have we put off from Christ because of culture? Because rather than presenting Christ, we have presented Christ wrapped in our own culture. And trust me, I see a lot of it. Thank you, culture. And the worst one in my reckoning. And you can see how he's the biggest. <laughs> is religion. What does Jesus have to say? Matthew 23, verses 27 to 28. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. What did Jesus have to say? How religion totally obscures, blocks it out, hides the, 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 the mirror, forces us to see it from a particular perspective. Religious lenses. And don't get me wrong. Religion is not a bad thing. Jesus had an element of, he, he was religious to an extent. The observance of the, of the laws, the observance of the, of the statutes, the observance of things like the Passover. There are these things, there's a foundation to our Christianity that is religious. But our Christianity is not religion. Our Christianity is a relationship. It goes one step beyond. The gospel is not religious. Religion plays a part, yes, of course. There are things we have to do. There are things we have to follow. But then, what makes the difference is that religion focuses on the external whilst Christ focuses on the internal. The way Christ works, the internal will affect the external. The way religion works, the external is all that matters. So religion becomes judgmental because I don't measure up on the external in the person's reckoning. I don't dress the part. I don't act the part. So because I'm jovial and I laugh and I'm full of life, religion says that I'm not right because religion says you must be somber. And being pious is equated with not laughing, certainly not in public. So that's religion. So there's a certain look that shows that I am now anointed. I mean, how can I be anointed in jeans? No. There's an, an, an anointed clothing that will show you that I'm anointed. It's religion. Religion is judgmental. So religion would say things like, you drink wine, oh, you can't be a good Christian. Religion forgets that I even have scriptural backing for that, but let's not go there for today. And the religious person says, you, you shouldn't really be drinking wine. And you look at the religious person's life. They eat the wrong things. They abuse the temple. They... They don't exercise. They abuse the temple. They sleep anyhow. They abuse the temple. You think you're better than me? No. You're abusing the temple. What you think is an abuse, I even have scripture for it. You, show me your own abuse. That's religion. And it can go on and on with religion. It judges. It disqualifies. It doesn't allow you to see Christ. 
I say to people that this Jesus we follow, he's not like a lot of these people who want us to follow them. Jesus was fun to be with. He was excited. Even sinners wanted to hang around him. What sinner wants to hang around a religious person? Self-righteous and judgmental? No. But Jesus, whenever he went to the sinner's house, it was the place to be. And we're trying to become like Jesus, but religion is in our way. It's big. It's overpowering. It's blocking the image. It's staring us down. And I'm saying, just give me a break. Can I see what Jesus was like? Religion is saying, no, you can only see Jesus through me. And the Jesus that I see through you is a religious Jesus. But the Jesus that is in that picture, that is in that mirror, is not a religious Jesus. I have to get over this religion so that I can see a religious Jesus. I can see the real Jesus. I have to get over ticking boxes as a qualification to a place where my transformation and my pursuit of Christ is my qualification. Can someone say amen to that? Thank you, religion. So brethren, as we end, what do we do? What is the essence of life? It really is maturity in Christ. You know, the Pentecostals think the essence of life is to be blessed by God. No, it's a byproduct. That's why Pentecostals don't talk about suffering. No, 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 no. Pentecostals, we don't like anything to do with suffering. In fact, if you're a good Pentecostal, the testimony of your life is that you haven't suffered anything. And that's how we know that we're all hypocrites and liars, because everybody has suffered something. God's aim is not to bless you. It's a byproduct. God didn't reconcile you just so that you can be blessed. Those are byproducts. God reconciled you so that you can go back to what you were, which is someone that is formed in the image and likeness of God. And how do we do that? We place ourselves in a place where we are beholding this mirror. The mirror is the word of God. By the Spirit of God, we're studying it. We're we are studying it. We're meditating on it. We're looking at it. And as we look at it, we begin to see Christ in it. As we see Christ in it, it tells us who we are. It's almost like you suddenly have a feeling of deja vu that this is who I'm supposed to be. It challenges you every day. That's why you can be religious and remain unchanged. You cannot be in a genuine relationship with Christ without changing. Because every day is challenging you. You can't say that because the image does not gossip. You can't act like that because the image says you must love even your enemies. So a lot of these, these prayers that are, that are killing people's enemies. Now, as long as they know it's the spiritual enemies that they're killing. But you know when some people are praying that prayer, kill my enemy, guess what image is before them? Their grandmother. Their mother-in-law. Yeah, 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 yeah. And some people, their wives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The enemy is at home sleeping in the bed with you. I remember one guy came to me. Thank you, Philip. I remember one guy came to me and said that, you know, that his wife is an enemy. And the guy prided himself on being, you know, man of God. He prayed a lot. So he said, Pastor, we have to pray and join hands against her. I said, what a tragedy. With all your anointing, you have been sleeping next to this devil. The anointing has not delivered her. Every day she's getting worse. Check yourself. Because if you're really as anointed as you are, when you lie down, the demons will leave her. The whole thing is about that image and that likeness. That's who we are. That's who, who we are going to be. Can someone say amen? The devil has told us too many lies. Those lies are over. I now know who I am. And I am going to walk in who I am. I suddenly understand my value. That I had a cranky husband who abused me and made me think I was worthless. I suddenly know that he was highly dysfunctional. He himself had no identity. And that's why he treated me like that. My identity is not in him. It is in the image, the express image of God. I suddenly know who I am. I have a father that rather than nurture me and love me, abused me. 
and made me feel there was something wrong with me because of how he treated me. Now, that lie of Satan has been torn to shreds. I look in the mirror and suddenly I understand that I have value for God. If I have value for God, what man is going to tell me that I don't have value? Suddenly, I understand what I'm supposed to do. I know why I am here. I know that I am supposed to rule. I, I am supposed to rule in the way that Christ ruled. I am supposed to serve humanity. I understand it. Gentlemen, we understand that, yes, we are heads of the home, but that headship is a servant headship. That headship is not a boss. What did you cook for me today? Why did you not cook for me? My mother always cooked for me. Nonsense and absolute rubbish. That, that, that I suddenly understand that my role is to serve. And yes, maybe I married her and she can't cook. But then part of my role is to nurture her and, and, and encourage her. And when she cooks, don't tell her there's, there's too much salt, there's no this, but tell her that this is really good. It is better than what you made yesterday. Oh my God, you're going to become a good cook. And, and I just thank God for your life. My role is to nurture. And wives, my role is not to be the caustic tongue. Look at your friends. You, 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 you bought me a car. He's used car. Did you not see the a, a Range Rover Evoque that they bought for Tom? And so your mouth cuts him to shred. No, my role is to understand him and to be a helper and to encourage him to become who he is. To hold his hand and together we behold the image. And daily we are transformed from glory to glory to glory because we are beholding the image. And you're a young lady, don't let, any, don't let any, any silly clown tell you that if you don't sleep with me, then we, can, we, we, we can't get on. What a joker. And he even, quote, he even used the Bible. He said, after all, Solomon had 1,000. What a fool that the person is. He wants to abuse your body. He doesn't know that you're valued. He doesn't know that, that he should wait for the night of the marriage. He wants to use you and dump you because he thinks you're a thin you need to tell him, I'm not a thing. I am a prized jewel of inestimable value in the hands of God. And if you can't learn from God how to treat me, then you don't, you don't deserve me. Because my father treats me well. Can someone say amen? I can go on and on. But let's give God a clap offering. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, we bless you. We bless you. The devil is a liar and a failed liar. Somebody say, I know who I am now. Go on, say it boldly. I know who I am now. One more time. I know who I am. Say, I know, I know my identity. Say, I am now walking in power. I'm walking in power. I'm walking in miracles. I'm walking in miracles. Because I know who I am. You know, we declared it by our confessions, but let's make a declaration by this song, Rise to Your Feet. We make this declaration by this song. Hallelujah. I'm walking in power. Oh